the Jewish views on Holocaust evidence, we found out about a new Wiener Library archive as gathered by the United Nations War Crimes Commission. Rana, the Arab-Jewish women's choir, tells us why they use music to unite people from all backgrounds. And we find out how Jewish charities stand to gain from the 2017 London Marathon. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The family of a British student who was stabbed to death in Jerusalem on Good Friday have said they're devastated by the senseless and tragic attack. Hannah Bladen, who was 20, had been taking part in an archaeological dig earlier on the day she was murdered. She was attacked by a Palestinian man with a knife while travelling on a light rail train near the old city. Miss Bladen had been studying at the University of Birmingham and was on an exchange programme with the Hebrew University. The Israeli ambassador to the UK, Mark Regev, is to become the first diplomat from the country in more than a decade to address students at the School of Oriental and African Studies. Many groups within the school, including the Palestine Society, have signed a statement protesting at Mr Regev's visit. SOAS itself has distanced itself from the event, but the university's registrar said our position has always been that SOAS is a place which promotes freedom of debate and has a long tradition of hosting speakers from all over the world. Documents forming an archive of Holocaust evidence which have not been seen by the public since the 1940s are to be made available in London at the Wiener Library. The papers were used by the United Nations War Crimes Commission and they show how Britain, the United States and Russia were slow to press for leading Nazis to face trial for crimes against humanity. The London Library was originally founded in the Netherlands and is named after Alfred Wiener, who shipped his collection to the UK and worked with the British authorities to chart Nazi crimes. A Chabad rabbi who was severely beaten six months ago at a train station in a town in western Ukraine has died of his injuries. Rabbi Mendel Dietsch was 64. After the attack, which happened days after Rosh Hashanah, he was airlifted to Israel but never regained consciousness at the hospital he was taken to in Ramat Gan. Two men and two women in Ukraine were arrested for the assault two weeks after it happened. And our final story this week, a record number of people have signed up for this year's Limud Conference of Jewish Learning in Moscow. Two and a half thousand people will go to the event next week, 25% more than last year. The chief rabbi of Moscow, Pinchas Goldschmidt, said religious spiritual life for Jews has seen a revival under President Vladimir Putin, with dozens of synagogues and rabbi-led Jewish community centres opening across Russia. That's the news this week. Now it's over to the sport with Adam. Thanks ever so much, Viv. In Maccabi football, Redbridge A manager John Jacobs says his side will be out for revenge this weekend when they take on London Lions A in the Cyril Annexteen Cup final. Saying they badly want to avenge their 5-2 loss in 2013, a win would also see them complete the first part of a potential League and Cup double. Brighton and Hove Albion chairman Tony Bloom was in celebratory mood after he saw them promoted to the Premier League. A Seagulls fan for more than 40 years, Bloom, who played Maccabi football for Hilgar, has ploughed £250 million of his own personal fortune into the club since taking over in 2009. And finally, Israel's rugby team will secure promotion to the World Championships if they can beat Malta this weekend. 
And remember, of course, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Thank you, Adam. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Clive Roslin, and let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. And joining me to go through it is the editor of Jewish News, Richard Ferrer, and Tony Honigberg, our producer. I think, Richard, the most interesting one is your first story on your leading story is about the poor British student who was killed in Israel. Yes, Hannah Bladen, on Good Friday, she was on a light railway in Jerusalem and she was stabbed by a 57-year-old Palestinian. She is only the second British victim in Israel in living memory. I think Yoni Jesner, the 19-year-old Scottish student in 2002, if memory serves, was the only other one. And his legacy was the Yoni Jesner Foundation that his mother, Marsha, set up to inspire young people. So potentially Hannah Bladen's uh, legacy could hopefully be as inspiring. It's a very sad story, though, isn't it? It's uh, unbelievably yeah. sad. She was a Derby County fan. The football team held a minute's silence in her memory on Sunday before a, a match. And we spoke to a couple of people that knew her, not well, but taught her at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem where she was studying. They've called her a treasure and an enthusiastic archaeologist, somebody who uh, was fulfilling her dreams by studying and working in Israel. So, uh, yes, it's a wretched story, and our thoughts go to the family. Of course, Richard, we mustn't forget that we always think when people are killed in Israel that they're always Jewish, and this young lady, of course, was not Jewish. She was a Christian, a quite devout Christian, as far as I understand, went to a local church. So we must uh, always try and remember that there are other people that go to Israel and get caught up in these horrendous acts of violence and, and of course the man that, that did it I, I understand he had mental issues himself and recently came out of being released from a hospital or something yeah he had a, a track record as obviously being a public danger and, and poor hannah it, it emerged in in the hours and days that followed that she was only standing next to this individual because she had politely got up to give a young mum with a baby her seat. Yeah, the more detail, yeah. the more heartbreak is revealed. Terrible, terrible, terrible thing. I'm glad you got it on the front page. I think that's really necessary. Also, sharing the front page, of course, there's the surprise decision for the election coming up in June. I think it took everybody by surprise. It certainly took me by surprise when I heard it. I thought, what is going on here? But it's nice to see that in the Labour Party, the three Labour MPs are standing, uh, Luciana Berger, Ruth Smith and Louise Elman, all standing with all the problems that the Labour Party has had with their, I'll put it in inverted commas, anti-Semitism issues going on, that they are still standing there that's a really good thing to see i'm glad about that yeah that's the third time in three years that britons are gonna go to the polls mm. and it certainly caught us all by surprise with Theresa may starting the firing gun we went to press on wednesday which is a you know a few days ago now and since then even more interesting battles within battles are, are starting to emerge there's the the question about Finchley and Golders Green where Mike Freer the Conservative MP is currently standing will Sarah Sackman renew her battle with Mike in that constituency will Wes Streeting hold on in Ilford North will the Jewish MP Conservative Lee Scott put his hat in the ring again Andrew Dismore has said he won't be standing again in Hendon uh, and then all the pro-Israeli MP mm. the Ivan Lewis's and LFI chair Joan Ryan 
will they hang on to their seats? And not to mention Luciana Berger, Ruth Smith. There's battles within battles within battles here. And as every day goes in the next 50 days, it will be very interesting to see not only how they do, but uh, quite how large the margin of success is for Theresa May. I'm glad we're talking about it because there'll come a time when we'll have to be quiet about the election uh, due to Ofcom rules. So. Stalking politically, there's also something very optimistic in today's edition, and that is that the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, is to honour the past at Yamaha Shoah. You've got a big article about that as well. When Sadiq Khan became London Mayor exactly a year ago, it was very touching that he chose his very first public appearance to be at the main UK Yom HaShoah commemoration at the Alliance Arena in Hendon. Well, this week he has confirmed he will be doing exactly the same thing again. He's going to address thousands of people, up to 5,000 people. This is an extraordinary event. It's really uh, is, is moving tribute to uh, the horrors of the Second World War. Uh, one memory that really sticks in my mind, I think it was about two or three years ago, that they played uh, a version of the Hatikva that was recorded by the BBC in a camp by liberated prisoners. Their hearts were soaring, they were finally free after all these years, and they sung the Hatikva, and that sound was played in the stadium and uh, honestly the hairs on the on the back of the neck really stood on end so if you're going this weekend please do pay your respects pay your tributes there are tickets are free you just need to go online to yomhashoah.org.uk for your free ticket it must have sent shivers down your spine when you heard that music playing of course you know i've got one other that that i wouldn't mind talking about which is Mark Regev speaking at SOAS with all the problems that have been going on within SOAS and I think he's a very brave man to actually address it, although there were protests by students. I think he was very brave. I'm not going to say I'm not sure he should have done it. I think he should have done it and I'm glad he has done it. Yeah, he's a great and eloquent spokesman for Israel and for the Jewish community. SOAS is a hotbed of anti-Israel activity and um, lots and lots of organisations have come up in arms about his presence on on campus, even complaining that his bodyguards will be armed so that students will be in danger. I mean, some of the palpable nonsense that they're coming up with in protest is absolutely laughable. But of course, you're quite right, Tony, you have to go into these campuses, the ones that are the most challenging, to challenge the viewpoints that are so demonstrably wrong. So Mark Regev, very eloquent and articulate and, and, and just the man for that challenge. Well, Richard, we've also got in the paper, of course, the 30 under 30 campaign going on um our three-week countdown of the 30 young people under 30 that are doing incredible things we're always fascinated by the future direction of our community where are we going well you just need to look at the incredible aspirations and achievements of of these you know go-getters to see that we are clearly in very safe hands we this week go from 20 to 11 so next week we're going to be announcing the top 10 and the person who our panel has voted the number one Jewish go-getter under the age of 30. I'm not going to spoil the surprise and this week we reveal people like uh, Josh Seatler, the current UJS president, Gabriel Pogrand who's uh, one of the, the finest young journalists in the country and Emily Hilton, another fantastic journalist, Oliver Anisfeld, who, who launched JTV. So some real role models to enjoy in this week's paper. I'm not trying to blow our own trumpet here, but I think within such a small community, we have such a great amount of 
people that are go-getters and I mean if you look at our history as people we came from nothing you know and we've made impacts everywhere and and this 30 under 30 and the thing that you do here it just proves how good we are at what we do and it, it is blowing our own trumpet a little bit or certainly me blowing my own trumpet but I think we have to do that and I think what you've done there is brilliant yeah, nothing wrong with a little bit of nachas, Tony. No, that's uh, we right. Will, we Just let nachas, as they say. Well, that's where we'll have to leave it for this week, but thank you very much indeed. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. As you heard just before... Documents forming an archive of Holocaust evidence which have not been seen by the public since the 1940s are to be made available in London at the Wiener Library. The papers were used by the United Nations War Crimes Commission and they show how Britain, the United States and Russia were slow to press for leading Nazis to face trial for crimes against humanity. To tell me more about this extraordinary collection and what you can expect to see in it is Ben Barco, the director of the Wiener Library. Ben, I find this whole story fascinating. What is so special about the collection? What's special about it is, firstly, it's a very substantial collection. It's about 518 boxes of, of documents. 518 boxes? boxes? So that would stretch about Ooh. half a mile if you laid it end to end. Yes. And these are records to do with the effort on the part of the Allies, even during the war, to find justice for the crimes committed by the, the Nazis and their Allies. But why has it always been kept as an almost secret, as it were. It does appear to have been kept secret. In, in reality, it, it wasn't being kept secret. The information was there about its existence, and there was a history written of this commission. But the documents were kept very inaccessible, and the archive itself is housed in the UN building in New York, and in order to get access to it, you need approval from your government, and then you go there. And up until quite recently... They were reluctant to show you the documents and you weren't allowed to take notes or, or have copies of anything. So it was rather inaccessible. And that was a hangover from really political considerations going back to the Cold War. So in other words, wasn't there also something about the fact that an awful lot of German scientists were being used by the Allies, if you like, by the West, and therefore they didn't want to get them involved because they may have had a Nazi past. The whole of the archive tends to show that, that a more serious effort was being made to prosecute war criminals in the East Bloc Iron Curtain countries than in the liberal democratic West. And, of course, the priority for, for Western governments was building up West Germany as a buffer against communism and to make use of scientists and other experts who had served the Nazi regime. So the whole work of the commission was in some ways sort of slightly embarrassing to the Western Allies. Isn't that rather sad? I think it's extremely sad, and particularly because when you look at the achievements of the, the UN War Crimes Commission, they were working to try to define human rights 
in a way that was in direct opposition to to the actions and and beliefs of the Nazi regime. So they were at a a very high moral standard, Mm. uh, and they did some extremely good and important work. And the neglect and lack of interest in in this collection means that when you look at it today, you can in a way see how far these human rights have been rolled back. And, you know, what a sad thing it is that, that they started off in a rather idealistic way. They really achieved some great things. And then through political interest and neglect, things fell away rather. What would you say are the most fascinating things now that they are there to be seen and read? Look, the the single most striking document in the collection is, I think, a, a charge sheet prepared by the Czech government in exile, specifically naming Adolf Hitler as a war criminal. The number one name on the charge sheet is Adolf Hitler. And this, I think, was unprecedented at, at that time to indict a serving head of state as a war criminal. That was a, re- you know, a remarkable thing. Of course, the political realities of the time meant that he was never going to appear in front of a court, but it drew a line, as Certainly it were. Did, it was yeah. Yeah, a sort of red line uh, to say, well, it doesn't matter that he's head of state. He's a war criminal, and we've got the evidence to prove it. And sadly, that never came out through all those years. It, I it, mean, we all know that, of course. Yes, of course. But at the particular time. Of course. At, at the time, I mean, and this, this document was, was prepared in December of 1944. So the war was still being fought at that stage. Oh, so it actually was before the before war ended. Before the end of the war. And it has great yeah, historical significance. So what's important now? What is, now that we've got our hands on it, mm. what is the most important thing that, that you feel should be done about it? As I think very few people have had the opportunity to, to work with the collection, in a way it remains to be seen what, what scholars and others will, will find in it. So it'll be very interesting to see what emerges from it. At the moment, I can say one area which is extremely interesting and and in a way rather inspiring is that right after the war even before the end of the war the commission was working very seriously very systematically to frame and bring prosecutions uh, for against people for rape and sexual violence as a war crime Oh, that's and that's extremely, you know, much earlier than we imagine. Because we, we think that, that the definition of rape as a war crime comes from the 1990s with you know, Rwanda and Bosnia and, and those sorts of conflicts. But no, in the mid-1940s, people were successfully being prosecuted and sentenced for rape as a war crime. And furthermore, the rape wasn't a sort of add-on for a whole lot of other charges, they were people were brought to trial just for committing rape as a war crime and successfully prosecuted. What I find so extraordinary about that particular thing is, is that why was it not known publicly at that time? It's I find that very difficult to to say, and and uh, you know in many ways, quite a lot of information about this collection has been there for a very long time so people could have made the effort to go and look but they just didn't it didn't capture people's imaginations and among professional historians of this period 
very well very few none really went to to examine this archive and in the books about looking for justice after the war and nuremberg and, and other trials uh, the work of the commission is generally played down a great deal dismissed it says enough they didn't do anything very important they didn't achieve very much this archive is of no great significance and it it's simply not the case you know for some for some reason us making this collection available to people it's like we've caught you know the spirit of the moment somehow it's captured people's imaginations and the interest seems to be enormous so i'm very hopeful that that a lot of people will come to work with it and discover very interesting things in it now how will you get people to come and work with it as you put it well i have to be clear that we're not permitted to just put all of the documents on our website what we are doing is the finding aids and the catalog will be on our website so people can go there and look to see what this archive is made up of what you know what kind of subjects they will find in there they can look at the lists of of the charge sheets and see oh well there's a whole enormous file of charges brought by you know, the Czech government in exile against Germany uh, things like that and then they can identify subjects or things that they might be interested and then come and look at the look at the digital versions of these documents at the library how long has it taken you have you gone through the whole thing I haven't personally gone through the whole thing because it, it's too big. Exactly. exactly. So I've kind of dipped in and out and, and seen that there are fascinating stories at every level. There are kind of things like the, the Hitler indictment that's of great historical interest or, or the, the prosecutions for rape as a war crime, which are very important for the development of human rights. But there are also really very human stories, you know, individual stories of individuals and what they endured. And one instance of that is is a, an indictment brought by the UK government against the commandant of Auschwitz. And this was in still in 1944. So they didn't even know the name of the commandant of they Auschwitz. They didn't know his name. They didn't know his name. It says the commandant of Auschwitz and then in brackets, you know, we need to establish his name. And then his deputy, whose name for some reason they did know. And the indictment is for abusing a British soldier. And this is a man called Private Harry Ogden, who had been a POW in Norway and had escaped from, from the POW camp there and somehow ended up in, in Poland fighting alongside Polish partisans. And then he was captured by the Nazis and they refused to believe that he really sort of was what he said. he, And so they didn't send him to a POW camp, they sent him to Auschwitz. And there, in the affidavit that he swore in front of the UN War Crimes Commission, he details how he was beaten and starved and, the, and what the conditions were like and how horrible oh, the experience amazing. was. So I, I think there might be interest from, for instance, the families of servicemen like that who want to come and see... We had a, a relative who was in the POW camp next door to Auschwitz. Maybe there's something in there about his experiences. That is, that's amazing. If anyone listening to this now wants to read this and find out about this, is there a way of doing it? It's open to anybody. So I would say initially look on our website, see if there's something there you want to come and, and see, and then give us a call and, and make, a, make an appointment and just come along and have right. a look. 
Well, we look forward to getting the chance to see it. But for now, Ben Barco, director of the Wiener Library, thank you so much for talking to me today. And if you'd like more information on the archive, then you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition will be our Jewish schmooze. And today our guests will be journalist and author Emma Klein and Jane Goff, education coordinator for West London Synagogue. And we'll be discussing finding common interests with those who perhaps don't like us. Plus, Dan Atoman will be speaking to Daniel Carmel Brown, the director of the fundraising department from Jewish Care, about participating in the London Marathon 2017. But first, the Rana Choir is an Israeli-based group who describe themselves as being an Arab-Jewish women's choir. Using their common interest in music, the women from different religious, cultural and even political backgrounds come together to demonstrate to the world that people can put their differences to one side if they really try. Arts editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to Mika Danny, the founder and conductor, to find out more. Kate started by asking Mika how the choir first came together. I uh, moved to Jaffa 13 years ago, and after many years of frustration from what we call here the situation, and from being involved in all sorts of activities that didn't lead anywhere, I realized that while I'm in Jaffa, I had a big opportunity to do something meaningful using my skills as a musician and uh, knowing, believing in the power of music to bring people together, to create uh, deep uh, relationships, and also in my belief in the ability and, and power of women to make change. I decided to create this Jewish Women's Choir. And so we started uh, in a public institution where I went and suggested this project. And that's how we started. We started looking for uh, women who would like to join the choir. And we started working in January 2008. And we worked in this, uh, it was a community center, an Arab-Jewish community center. We worked there for uh, eight years. And in January 2016, we left the center and we became an independent choir together with my uh, colleague who was the musical director of the Arab Jewish Center. We started this new project of, I mean, the choir is the same choir, the same singers, but um, we are now independent. You're saying the situation, you obviously mean the the Israeli-Palestinian situation. Yes, but also everything that's happening between Arabs and Jews in Israel, what they call Israeli Arabs. And you were hoping that the music will kind of bring you together. Is that what you want to achieve? Yes, well, it does. It did bring together the women of the choir. When you sing in in a choir, the basic rule is that you have to listen very carefully to the person who is standing on your right and on your left, and you have to be synchronized whether it's the melody, the rhythm, or the harmony, which is a very good point to start a dialogue. So we as a group, as a choir, through singing together and actually almost living together, 
created this very strong bonds and it affected also the circles around us of families and friends. And also when we, I mean, we don't have any illusions. We know that we're not going to bring peace to the Middle East, but we do know from our experience that after each and every performance, people come and say to us things like, you're giving us hope or wow, we didn't think it was possible. And we feel that we are planting little seeds in the hearts of the people and giving them food for thought. Who are your audience? All kinds of audiences. I mean, we perform all over the country to people who are what we call already convinced who come to hear us, but also we try to reach as many people who are not convinced with the idea that it's possible to live together, to respect each other in every way. In the choir, among the Jewish women, not everybody is a left-wing person and people have different political opinions. And still we manage to stay together for nine years now. The music transcends the politics. Yes, because we all agree that we have to live together. Some would say we have no choice. Some would say we we want to live together because I think that now all the group knows, everybody in the choir knows it. how much each and every one of us was enriched by this being together for so many years. I understand that you've got an Israeli-Palestinian Memorial Day ceremony on the 30th of April. Tell us a bit about that. I mean, there is a video which one can watch on YouTube, any listener can watch, which is very powerful. Tell us a little bit about that, what you're doing in it and what this day hopes to achieve. Every year we have um, in Israel a memorial Day, which is a memorial day for all the soldiers and the people who were killed in the different wars or terrorist attacks around Israel. And it's a, it's a kind of sacred day here in Israel. And, it's, and all the ceremonies that are held on this day are only for the Jewish Israeli people who died in the wars and everything. And this is a special ceremony that is taking place for 11 years now. It's held for 11 years now. It's organized by an organization that's called Combatants for Peace. And it's different because it's a memorial ceremony for both Israeli and Palestinian people who were killed. And so you have families who lost the dear ones from the the occupied territories from Palestine who come to the ceremony, which is held in Tel Aviv in Israel. And also, of course, many Jewish people who come to the ceremony. And we, in the, for in the last eight years, we participate in the ceremony every year. We actually close the ceremony. We sing at the end of it uh, the Chag Gadya, which is um, the Passover song. But we're singing a version that is based on a, a version that was originally written by Angelo Branduardi, who is an Italian famous singer and musician, and was translated into Hebrew, which tells exactly the story of, like everybody knows, from the Haggadah, but with an additional verse that was added in the end by uh, the Israeli singer Chava Alberstein, who translated it into Hebrew and added a, another verse that says, on all other nights, I only ask four questions and... On this night, I'm asking one question more. uh, Until when will the circle of horror endure? And, you know, uh, I used to be a lamb and a goat and uh, so on. You're coming to France soon, I understand. What are you doing there? 
we are going to perform in uh, Toulouse and in Perpignan. We're going to have three concerts there uh, in May. Maybe we can encourage you at some point to come to the UK. If, oh, we'd love to. <laughs> if our <laughs> listeners would like to, to see you, where can we find you? And tell us a bit more about the music as well, the music itself. Is, is it classical music? It's mostly folk songs in Arabic, in Hebrew, in, in different languages from all the cultures that we have here in our region, which is in which we also you even have a song in Yiddish. Ladino, Greek, uh, Persian, Turkish, uh, whatever, Yemeni, Moroccan, this kind of thing. We, we sing many what's called women's song, which is this particular genre that exists in all the cultures in the world, which are songs that women used to sing while they were cooking together or wa- washing the laundry together and telling each other about their secrets and problems and whatever and some of the women talented women turned it into songs so we have some of those and well we perform all over the country here in israel i mean we would love to perform in england and everywhere abroad i mean if anyone wants to invite us we're always ready to go Mika Danny, the founder and conductor of the Rana Choir. And if you'd like more information and to watch a clip of the choir in action, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment will be this week's schmooze. Remember, we live stream the schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm BST. I'll give you the address in just a moment but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And we'll try and read those comments out as and when we get them. It's just another way to share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you'd like to get involved, we'd love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk and of course all of those details can be found on our website jewishviews.co.uk Now you may recall last year thousands of pounds worth of potential income was lost from the pockets of Jewish charities because the London Marathon clashed with Pesach. Luckily, that's not the case this year, and on Sunday the 23rd of April, hundreds of thousands of people will line the streets of the capital for one of the biggest annual events, including our next guest, who will actually be running in the marathon. Daniel Carmel Brown is director of the fundraising department at Jewish Care, and he's been speaking to community editor Diana Toman to tell her how he has been preparing for it. Diana started by asking Daniel, why is this marathon so important to you? This one's very special to me because I'm running it for the first time. And after 20 years of working at Jewish Care, I decided that I should do something that I've seen lots of other people do in my time here at Jewish Care, which is take on a huge challenge. There are various reasons why I've chosen to do the marathon, which I'm sure we can talk about in a moment, but it's a special one for me because it's the first time I'm doing it. 
How long have you been with Jewish Care? 20 years. And this sort of momentous thought came to you after <laughs> 20 years. How splendid. Now, we're not, of course, we, by we, I mean Jewish Care, are not the only charity who are running in the marathon on Sunday coming, are they? There are a lot of them. No, there are thousands of charities that get represented by runners. I was actually this morning at the um, London Marathon Expo, which is where you go to receive your running number, which you put on your vest, and there were hundreds of charities with stands there and actually there was a presentation by one of them talking about how the London Marathon is the single largest fundraising event in the world because on Sunday £60 million will be raised how did they arrive at 60 million? Are we already assuming that the runners have already paid in advance? Well, or, no, they don't. They don't or they've got sponsorship. They get advance? sponsors. That's it's right. people like me who ask a charity, I'm doing it for Jewish Care, obviously, for a place in the marathon. And then I ask people to support the charity by supporting me as a runner. So I've been very fortunate in being able to raise quite a bit of money for right. Jewish Care by doing this endeavour. And you were going to tell me why this one is special. Well, this one's particularly special because I have been very fortunate to have worked for Jewish Care for 20 years, but I've also seen the other side of the organisation as a relative in that time as well. I've had three grandparents who have been cared for by our care homes. And most recently, my, my um, last remaining grandparent, who was alive until January, was a resident of Vine John Rubens, and she received the most exceptional care uh, for a number of years, and particularly in the last few days of her life. I have to be honest, I've spent the last 24 hours with her and my mum and the rest of the family, and seeing how my colleagues, our colleagues, look after someone at that point in their life was a very touching experience and was one of the reasons why I was motivated to undertake this. So I'm partly doing it to celebrate my 20 years, but I'm also dedicating it to all our colleagues, the volunteers that support the organisation in making it possible. Just running, run in your family, if you'll excuse no, the pun. <laughs> not particularly, although my brother, my, I'm the eldest of three boys, and my, my middle brother has run the marathon twice for Jewish care and in part he was he inspired me because he's the younger fitter more handsome one in the family and uh, watching him do it a few years ago and standing on the sidelines I thought one day I would love to be able to do that so it doesn't necessarily run in the family but I was inspired by him it's been a 17 week training program started on the afternoon of Christmas day actually and Effectively, it's about building up your stamina to be able to run long distances. So I started off, I mean, I've been running a little bit before that, but this was more serious and started off doing up to about three to five miles initially and then six miles, seven, eight miles, ten miles. The last probably month or so have been the, the hardest because you have to get up to about 20 miles. So I gather, the, because the entire distance is, what does it say here, 26.2? 26.2 miles. Everyone right. reminds me of the point two, because when, when you get to 26, there's another, <laughs> Quite, another bit to go. Yeah, oh, God, I've got still to run 2.2. Yeah, 0.2 of a mile to go. And this is in London, isn't it? In this London, is, So we're, we're running on hard tarmac? On hard tarmac, on, on the roads of London, and you see the most incredible sights as you run around it starts in Greenwich the halfway point is across Tower Bridge and you end just around Buckingham Palace right down the Mall, finishing Horse Cars Parade 
Daniel Carmel Brown, director of the fundraising department for Jewish Care, speaking to community editor Diana Toman there about preparing for this year's London Marathon. Good luck to him and indeed all of those who'll be taking part. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today is journalist and author Emma Klein and Jane Goff, Education Coordinator for West London Synagogue. The subject today is based on the interview we heard with Kate a little earlier on. The Rana Choir is a group that pride themselves on bringing together women from all different religious and cultural backgrounds. The participants are united by song, and so we thought it would be quite nice to talk about common interests. The question is, how should we go about trying to find mutual territory with those who hate us, or rather those who are told to hate us? Is there some way in which we can take inspiration from a group of women who've shown the world that everyone can find a way forward together if they really try. Emma, let's start with you. You sort of have first-hand experience of this because you've often told us of your family in the West Bank area who live relatively harmoniously with Palestinians. Uh, yes, well, my, my sister is very orthodox and very right-wing, but on a human level, very kind, very generous. And they live in Shumron, in Samaria, and they had to have building works to extend their little place a while back. And they had some Palestinian builders with whom they got on very close terms. And as an example, when their daughter's building in Ramat Gan, in normal Israel, shall I say, needed some work they took the Palestinian builders there and they keep in touch with them and have very good relations and with others too. So it's human things that are important rather than religion or race. And what Clive mentioned about the singers who got together, obviously if you find a common passion like music or singing, that's a very good way of bringing people together. Jane, do you think this shows a sign of optimism for what might happen Eventually. Very much so, actually. I think it's similar to what I felt when Daniel Barenboim created his orchestra of Palestinians and Israelis. I mean, that was amazing. They toured the world. and So this is just another sign. It's uh, interesting, it's such interrupting, but it's yeah. interesting that you mentioned this because I remember the fact that Daniel Barenboim said on one occasion that some of the members of his little orchestra hated each other Mm-hmm. Which did, rather yeah. spoils it, I didn't it? remember that. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I think the fact that they gel together and work through that hatred just by music. And I think Emma's right. I think there is a, th- a thing about sometimes it has to be done on one human with another. I think sometimes, you know, when I look at the global situation, think, how can I make a difference? The only way I can make a difference is at a very local level. It's with my neighbours. I have Muslim neighbours and I make a point of speaking to them. They're a lovely family. They're very open. We talk about God. And that's the way I feel that I can move my sort of peace for the world. I think it takes communication. It is a common interest. And music is a great, I think, leveller, as is art, as is all the cultural 
big ones, but I, I do think also it there is so much fear attached with conflict, isn't there, on both sides. And as you say, I think a lot of it is we're trained to hate. We are taught beliefs that actually don't stand up. It's very interesting because that means that ordinary people can have this good relationship that you're talking about, but at the top, the politicians, unfortunately, don't have that. No, that's a very good point. Absolutely. But that's always the case, isn't it? Mm. I mean, the problem with the whole Jews, Muslims, Israel, Palestine is is not really the people. It's the leaders. I mean, mm. I was, I got a puncture in my car a couple of weeks ago and went and got it changed. Mm. And another guy pulled up behind me. We got talking. He was a Muslim guy. I told him I was Jewish. And we were just talking mm. about our kids and our families. And it was amazing how close our values, our morals, our ideals we could have been brothers yeah. Yeah. which essentially we are really yes. and it's so often that you find that, that the lay person doesn't really have that much of a problem mm-hmm. in the sense that they, they right. generally do want peace but right. you do wonder if the leaders do and, and it's mm. certainly self-serving for some of the leaders which mm. is why I think some of them don't want to which is why they perpetuate this Conflict. ill-education yeah. ill-education very yeah. good point yeah. I think that at the time when all the troubles were going on in Northern Ireland I was actually going out with someone from Northern Ireland and I went and he lived in a very strong Protestant area and I remember he took me home to meet his mother and all of this and I remember walking around this area and you know with all the English the St George flags out Mm -hmm. and and there was such a feeling of it was like I was in a siege it's like it had been put under siege by itself You know, yeah. and it was... It's very interesting that you bring it up because yeah. I have a very close friend who comes from Southern Ireland, who right. comes from the Republic of yeah. Ireland. And he and his sister were going to stay and had booked at a hotel in Northern Ireland <laughs> for a couple of nights. And when they got there, they went in, they said to them, no, you haven't booked. I'm afraid the hotel is full. And they discovered the reason why they said that was they saw their car was... An Irish, Southern Irish number plate. Number plate. Yeah. Well, so it still goes on. Well, we used to go to, on holiday every year to our holiday, if I can call it that, to visit our family. We had an English car, but we were visiting our Catholic relatives. Mm, right. So we were always in trouble wherever we were. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting you bring up Ireland because it's amazing how well the peace negotiations have gone regarding Ireland over the last 10 years. I wonder if there's any lessons the Israeli-Gazan conflict could take from that. Mm. Interesting. Because what what did they do exactly? Is it more a case of were they more ready for peace? Were were people getting to the stage where we thought there actually isn't an alternative option? Wasn't wasn't a ball thrown into the the ground by a group of women who said we've had enough, we're losing our sons? Oh, that's true. Was that true? Oh, really? There was a peace movement. Right. I, I don't remember that. I do know that the IRA had decided that they were losing the battle. So they would go political. And so they decided yeah. to go forward with the yeah. peace process, Yeah, which was thanks to Tony Blair, really. Which he was. Worked yeah. Yeah. And it was a women's movement, an but Irish women's movement. Yes, yeah. it was. And yeah. I remember right. they had kind of started fighting for peace because right. they were tired of losing their Absolutely. sons. Absolutely. Well, that's interesting, because obviously this this choir, it's Mika sure. Danny, yeah. is, is, sorry, is a female. And yeah. Yeah. it's another female movement that sure. seems to be but, pushing this yeah. forward. Do you think females are more like... I mean, 
they have more potential for developing Peace. these personally these i think they do because they're less aggressive <laughs> that and they're less engaged with oh. the actual fighting i find it's generally oh, a male sure, thing sure, that sure, they're sure. toing and froing yeah. between yeah. the loops. actually actually there's trouble in northern ireland at the moment they can't come to an agreement about a government and the the leading first minister who will is not being recognized by the Sinn Féin mm. is in fact a woman Oh, and things are not good in Northern Ireland again at the moment. So could be a, 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 a reaction to McGuinness dying. McGuinness? Yeah, no, this started before he died. because ah, he kind of turned from terrorist or freedom fighter to to peacemaker. Wasn't yeah. He? Yeah. yeah, but it's very interesting. I was talking again to this same Southern Irishman mm-hmm. recently about his death. And he said to me, and he comes from Dublin, and he said, but of course, I don't know why everybody's making such a fuss about him, what a great man he was. He was a murderer. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, that's that. how, yeah. yeah. A lot of people saying that. Yeah. If there's a leader in, in, of Hamas, yeah. or, or even in, in the Israeli government, that, that actually wants to do that and actually think, you know what, this is getting us nowhere. Right. I think most people would say, okay, You've got quite a checkered history with some of the things you have. But, but yeah, again, yeah. surely it's yeah. the it's what everyone want, well, wants. Absolutely. Most people you'd hope would want. But mm. is it ever going to happen? I mean, it's all very nice having these, like the choir. Yeah. It's, it's a lovely idea. And you're right, music, art, sport, all these things bring people together. But yeah. well, it's not just, how effective it, can it be? As yeah. Emma's just said, it's not just that. Her sister had builders, Palestinian builders, yeah. with whom mm. they got on very well. But does your sister really believe in peace with the Palestinians? She would like peace, but she would probably not want a two-state solution. She would like them all to live together in peace. But in, I suppose, I I don't discuss politics with her because that's one area we don't really agree. Mm. So that's the problem. But I mean, she would want to be on good terms, you know, Mm. friendly, Mm. not not putting them down, mm. you know, mm. equal sort of citizens, mm. but within, I suppose, a larger Israel. I suppose that must be her uh, ideal, mm. but I, I don't know. I, so what we're really saying is that although it all sounds lovely, there's not much hope of this working. I well, I'm very that, hopeful. I, I you mean, mean in Israel-Palestine? Yes, I am. I don't so know good. why. Maybe it's... Well, not very hopeful. I'm hopeful. Well, um, I'd like to see a change of government. But Oh, that's also true. Yeah. True. Um, I mean, I'm hopeful, but I think we have to really drop this... He said this, well, yeah. she said that. You know, yeah. it, it's yeah. this tit-for-tat yeah. that's getting in the way. I mean, it's like... I don't know how your sister feels, but there was an element of what you were saying there, Emma, was... Yes, she wants peace, but... And then there's terms. Well, and, if, and if people are so rigid to their terms, then we're never going to get peace. Yeah. So it's all very well having these idealistic views, but in reality, you have to give, and I'm not sure if people are ready to give. It's very interesting, because I don't know whether she would also accept being Jews within so-called Palestinian state because of course you have Arabs in Israel but whether within a Palestinian state depending on how peaceful the Palestinians whether they would accept Jews as fellow citizens and you know I don't know Now you've made a very interesting point because there are many Palestinians living in Israel who are Israeli citizens. Absolutely. There are even Palestinians who are members of the Israel the Parliament. Yes, yes. And But unfortunately, it doesn't work the other way around. The Israelis mm. are, unfortunately, they, they are pressing all the time for 
Israelis, sure, we'll be friends with the Palestinians, but on our terms. Mm. And mm. it's got to be equal terms, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So complicated. I saw a video that's yeah. going around on social media at the moment, right. and it's an Israeli guy. It's all, you know, it's someone's obviously filming it on their phone, and he's standing by, like, a table, and he's rallying for how he thinks Israel are behaving poorly towards the Palestinians, how Israel must give and how Israel are... He's very negative and talking mm-hmm. very negatively about how the state is oppressive. Mm-hmm. And these two Palestinian guys come up to him and say, what are you talking about? How could you say this? I live in Israel. Israel gives me my life. I love it. And it's it's That's bizarre not, watching yeah, the Israeli yeah, yeah. argue... Yeah against Israel yeah, and the Palestinians were arguing before, that's very yeah. very interesting yeah. and, and it's amazing how often things like that crop up but because you don't always get every side of the story do you, you? no that's when people say Israel most of them think that it's all Jews they yeah. don't think and that there's they forget and, that and Christians the only place in the Middle East where Christians can be free and have a proper life yeah. is in Israel yeah. and, and in many people's opinions, the only place where some Muslims can actually That's have a, a, very a good free well, life Actually, well, also Palestinians yeah. in the other Arab countries, yeah. they're treated appallingly. Well, people forget that one in four people that live in Israel are not Jewish. No, right, no. And there are more Jews living outside of Israel than living yeah, inside absolutely. of Israel. You yeah, know, yeah, the figures yeah. are completely against it. Right. Really. But you have, we have these self-beliefs, don't we, that are based on misinformation oh, or point. doctrine. That wouldn't stir us because we've never been told yeah. that. It's about, I think you mentioned education, didn't you? Well, you did said I? about... Well, education is very important because, yeah. I, mean, Palesti- I mean, often Palestinians are taught at schools one of the things they've got to do is to hate Jews. Yeah. I mean, that is so sad. Well, I think UNRWA, have, United Nations, have just recently spoken about how there is certain things that they will have to take out of Palestinian textbooks. That's a good point. Because it's... Mm not as friendly or not mm, a, mm. as let, let's say there's certain bias mm, in, in, mm. in the textbooks <laughs> that, oh, yeah, I mean it, it, Israel so. have been Trump campaigning for ages to get it taken out and they finally are mm, mm. so hopefully that is a step in the right yes, direction hopefully, yeah, hopefully. But yeah. it is, it's the very young yeah. because by the time someone's 30 40 yeah. and they've been, they've been indoctrinated for yes, all those years yeah. but it's the same with the Israelis I mean all these Israelis who've now moved into parts of Palestine which they should not have done mm. is oh. is totally wrong because it looks as though Israel is trying to take over Palestine mm. completely mm. yeah you're right yeah. it does cut both yeah. ways it does yes. cut, yeah. and it's that indoctrination slash brainwashing yeah. almost yeah. That, that both sides need to to rein in but the problem is which is what we touched on earlier in in my opinion is there are certain people that don't want it no they oh, don't want peace because right. there are certain... I mean, for example, I, uh, we know that a lot of leaders of Hamas live in these mansions in Qatar. Sure, absolutely. You know, well, why would they want this to end? Yeah. <laughs> and it is, it's getting to the the street level yeah. and educating, yeah. but how do you do that? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. By I, getting a whole lot of different women of different <laughs> sorts to sing together. <laughs> and maybe that will slowly but very slowly build up so that eventually, finally, one day people will be able to say, well, there is a chance. Mm, right. Even it, in Gaza, even in Gaza. It, it's, is, it, is it possible to have local communities, you know, very local villages, communities, where there are a coming together, maybe a community centre or some yeah. hall where you share food? And, although nobody might not come the first night, you know, mm. maybe... Yeah. A, 
No, that's a very good idea. But Gaza is something different it in is, a way yeah. from the West yeah. Bank, or you know. Well, yeah. there I'm afraid our time is up, and we just have to wait and see, and let's hope it will all work out. Anyway, my thanks to our guests, journalist and author Emma Klein and Jane Goff, Education Coordinator for West London Synagogue. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And of course, all of those details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Ben Kurtzer from Edgware United Synagogue. Approaching the snap election, there has been much discussion about Theresa May's statement that she would not be holding any TV debates. Some have praised her for avoiding the show business of politics, while others condemned the decision as an attempt to dodge scrutiny. The Prime Minister's decision is not for me to pass comment on, but it got me thinking about the value of silence in certain circumstances. This week, in Parashat Shemini, we read about the inauguration of the Temple and the death of Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu. The Torah describes Aaron's reaction with two words, Vayidom Aaron. Aaron was silent. This reaction is given high praise, and one wonders what was so special about Aaron's silence. The commentaries explain that the great value of these righteous men could not be expressed in words. The concealed inner holiness of the righteous cannot be adequately conveyed in public mourning. An external reaction would not have done them justice. This Sunday evening, we will be commemorating Yom HaShoah. There will be many excellent and important public tributes that I encourage people to attend. The importance of remembering the Shoah and gathering to commemorate cannot be overstated. But there is a second element which I think is just as essential. As well as attending ceremonies, we must also make time for silent reflection. To remember in private the inner holiness of the individuals we lost, the simple righteousness of so many families, and the special, unique character of the six million souls taken to heaven. This is the lesson of Aaron's silence, the value of inner thought, the holiness that no one sees, and the righteousness of a deep personal connection with the Almighty. And thank you to Rabbi Ben Kurtzer from Edgeway United Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guest Ben Barco from the Vina Library, Mika Dani from the amazing Rana Choir. Do have a listen to them if you can. Daniel Carmel Brown, best of luck to him and all those running in the London Marathon 2017. And thanks to all our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley, Sue Greenberg, and Tony Honigberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the option to listen again to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London.
I'm Clive Roslin. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.